So if you start reading the first chapter and a half of Ephesians, this is where we are, and you are reading in Greek, like as you do, um, you would literally be without breath. There, it's one sentence. It's breathless because it's like a tirade of God's tenderness. It's a, it's a, it's a rant of redemption, of rest. When Ephesians talks about grace, it's talking about one thing. The unmerited favor, kindness, mercy, love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. And in Ephesians, in this passage, it, it orients it to being a work of art, a workmanship, something beautiful that he's creating. Actually, one of my mentors sent me this when I said I was going to work on this so that I'd have a reminder of the beauty that would become. And I do drink coffee out of it, too. So. Dishwasher safe. So it's his skilled hand that is crafting something in us, something of us, that is beautiful to him and to the world. That's what grace is. Now, here's the deal. God's um, art studio or workshop is not found in some, which I would prefer, edgy Soho studio or pristine country cottage. It's actually more in the mash unit. Mash? Old people? Loves mash. Children? YouTube it. It's a wartime space for rest and healing. That's where he does his workshop. So God brings grace to us, his unmerited kindness, into the real world we live in, not the world we pretend we live in. And the broken in us and the broken by us, even the broken that others have done against us, he brings his gold to bear, his love, his blood, and he, he begins to mend and remake us for good. In God, both the brokenness and the grace are inescapable. It's where he does his work. It is the work he does. And I'm going to save application and like the so what about the sermon till the end, but I would ask you to do this. I would dare, triple dog dare you to do this. Read chapter 1 and 2 in front of the mirror. Slowly. Sometime this week. Or better, have a friend read it over you. And then you read it over them. Triple dog dare you. Not even willing to take the dare myself yet. <laughs> but I dare me and you to do it. All right, hard stop. Since COVID, Redeemer, if you're new to Redeemer or not, Redeemer's been through what we've called a chrysalis, a very hard time where things melt down, and yet we're hoping for the day in which we will break out of that cocoon and fly. Uh, my son said, Redeemer's back, coffee's right, snacks are good, Redeemer is back. So we're flying with coffee right now, so we know we're good, at least, you know. Um, 
but that your elders weren't sitting around during this time wringing their hands alone, though there were lots of wringing of hands for all of us in prayer and all that good stuff. But um, with the input of our women's council, our beloved women's council, we were praying and seeking and discerning how to articulate who and what we really are. This led to the codifying of a philosophy of ministry. In church, modern church talk, it's just a POM. And Chris, you were invaluable in helping us through that. A philosophy of ministry is, uh, it, it sounds kind of like either technical or whatever. It's not that sophisticated. It's simply the way of being a church. Every church has a philosophy of ministry, whether spoken or non-spoken. It's a way of doing what we're going to do. The things in the scriptures that we pull out and say we're going to concentrate on these things. It's a, it's a guide for decision-making. It takes the eternal word and beautiful uh, reality of the truth of the Scriptures and with discernment about who we are, what our history is, and what we're becoming, um, discerns the specific ways in which that plays out. I'm not going to show you the slide yet because um, I did it on PowerPoint and it's not good. Um, And of course, explaining a whole philosophy of ministry would take more than a sermon, and we'll roll that out as we go. Um, But if I did show it to you, you'd see a tree, and on the tree at the trunk, there would be three things. One would be worship, and one would be transformation, three words, and the other would be service. If you looked on the back of your bulletin, you would see similar words to those things, is that we're a worshiping community, transformed by God's grace into faithful servants of all. That is a codifying of what we've been, what we've always been, what we hope to be. And that's nothing new. It isn't novel. It's not particularly hip. But it's who we are and who we're becoming. It's what Paul is saying when he says, by God's grace you have been transformed or you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, so that we don't boast, for we are created in His work, uh, created in Jesus Christ. We are His workmanship, created in Jesus Christ, so that we may have works to go do ourselves. The trunk of the tree you will see, and you'll see all sorts of other places around the philosophy of ministry, this term called grace. And it's a grace that transforms us, remakes us, repurposes us from brokenness into beauty. And what you see in this passage today is that that grace is outside of us. It is, Paul says, not of our own doing. It's a gift, a gift from God himself. And you don't make your own gifts. I mean, you do if you're a parent. Sometimes. (laughs) But you can't make your own grace. You receive it. When Amanda and I were first married, we were were broke as the Ten Commandments. We had no money. We didn't have Christmas money. We didn't have haircut money, much less Christmas money. So um, we actually, um, I say took, took legally we asked and were given the permission to, um, to get um, fabric from the fabric store shop she worked at. And yes, I made pillows. 
I made pillows for my army ranger special ops father. Throw pillows. It's funny now, but it proves the point. My dad, I don't think, ever bought a throw pillow in his life. He needed to, if he needed a throw pillow, it had to be a gift. Now, I'm not a master craftsman, but in the end, they were a gift. And I must say, with Amanda's eye and my incredible execution, we, we really pulled a couple rooms together. YouTube that as well. If you have ears to hear, you can hear. It's amazing how Paul uses this gift as a metaphor. Grace is a gift. It's a gift done by God. It is done in us. It is done. We are that workmanship. It's our own remaking that is the gift, the craft, the craftsmanship of the incredible craftsman. But it's not done of wood or stone or paint or metal. It's done in human beings. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Let that sit around in your soul for a bit. Take residence in your brain for a bit. The gift of God's grace is the recrafting of who you are as a human being. We are actually his great work. But that in Christ thing is like super important. In modern terms, we often think that us being our full selves is really important, and the Bible affirms that. But in in kind of some modern terms or ideas, it's actually that if we could just figure out on our own who we really are and then become that, that becomes the liberation from um, all societal and personal restraints. That will be our freedom to our true selves. The problem with that is not the reality of that. The problem is that is that if we're the only arbiters of that, and that no one, no other, can speak into that. The Bible affirms you being your full self. The major caveat is that he knows you better than you know yourself. We participate in the workmanship of God, but not as the master craftsman, but as the cup, as the mug. The lamp I have at home can't fix itself, and I'm no master craftsman, but hopefully it will be fixed. It needs an artist outside of itself to fix it, the glory and the beauty and the grace of someone caring enough to put it all back together. You don't fix it, but you are made beautiful. You are in the equation, and you matter greatly. That is the grace talked about here. And when you become convinced that you're broken and that you can't fix yourself, To use an AA term, its first step, you are powerless over it. 
your addiction of self-rule and self-fixing, that's the beginning of the healing. Or to use the second step, when you become convinced there is a higher power, it even becomes more liberating. Actually, the gospel flips it, the scriptures flip it just a little bit with all due respect for AA. Um, They're the same prerequisites, one and two, but one and two flip in the gospel. And that is that first you're convinced of a higher power that loves you. And then that frees you to admit that you're broken. That your life is not better on your own. Your life is better in God because you are his workmanship created in Christ. Grace starts with the higher power that is benevolent. And in Scripture, in Ephesians, it is Christ Jesus, the Father and the Son and the Spirit is God, the Trinity. And what if Paul is saying in the first chapter up till now in Ephesians is that there is this source, this higher power that is full of mercy and love and kindness called grace and that it is in his very nature to be those things. And yes, he is angry at sin, but that anger is born of love. That anger is not born of punitive measures. Uh, the opposite of, of love is not anger or hate. It's indifference. And God is never indifferent. So it's actually God's kindness, His character that leads us to repentance. That liberates us to admit the things we've broken and the ways we're broke in. This is the source for all of us, is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father authors this grace. A few verses before, it says, Beloved, in Him we have redemption through His blood. That's Jesus there. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, making known to us the mystery of His, the Father's will, according to His, the Father's purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Not only is this grace something that is real, it's premeditated. It got thought about long before we ever broke the lamp or the cup or the front right tire. If there is a God, and there is, He's already pre-planned a response to all of our failure and folly and all the folly and sin done to us as well. And when you know you get this, when we're at that trunk of the tree of the philosophy of ministry, you know your instincts, your muscles for getting this are when you mess up, you don't run from the Father, you run to the Father. When you really mess up, you don't run from the Father, you run to the Father. That's when you know it's gotten down deep into who you are. You're free to admit failure because you've been convinced that God knows you better than yourself. He loves you better than you love yourself. He is creating you into something better than you can imagine in yourself. And that's not easy. But it's the realer thing. It's the truer thing. 
The Father authors the grace. The Son accomplishes it. Created in Christ Jesus. I beg you to go back when you're reading through and read again and, and, and look about how this kind of cosmic plan the Father had is, is meted out in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. In Him, chapter 1 says, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It is what accomplishes this transforming grace in us. He makes it happen. His blood, His resurrection makes it happen. And it's forgiveness for us, but it's also fuel for us and in us and for the world. God has this natural instinct to rescue us in our brokenness. And he pre-plans a redemptive story, and that redemptive story includes taking all his anger and all of our brokenness and putting it upon Jesus and then dying in that brokenness and then being risen from the dead in victory over that brokenness and sin. He loves to overcome our rebellion with his love. He likes doing it. And so we have the forgiveness of sin in Jesus. Jesus, the only authentic, true self for gives us forgiveness and empowers us in a new life in Him. This is why Peter says it's more precious than gold. And it's that very gold that He uses to repair us. Seals us back together and seals us to Him. Now, by no means, by no means, by the way, it is hot, and I'm sorry. I'm sweating up here under these lights, and I understand that our second air conditioner, which will be both of our air conditioners replaced, is going to come right about mid-September when we don't need it as much anymore. Um, but So by no means is the forgiveness of sin the only thing Jesus accomplished in his life. But y'all, it is a beautiful, true, and wonderful thing. This grace says it's okay to admit it. You can give up. You don't have to pretend. All of it. All of it. The stuff you don't even want to admit to yourself, much less any other human being. The stuff that haunts you and it's haunted you for years. All of it. The stuff you do in secret, the anger and rage and pride, you're controlling and you're conniving, the lying or the laziness, all of it. The Father not only knew it, He pre-planned to redeem it, and the Son accomplished it. So you can lay your burdens down. Even if the consequences are dire, you can lay your burdens down. It's going to be okay. Because He's making you into something beautiful because of Jesus' accomplishment. Now, the Spirit plays a really important part, and it's not in our text today, but it is all through the first uh, chapter and a half, and I don't like being a Binitarian, just the Father and the Son, I like being a Trinitarian with the Holy Spirit, and Presbyterians are typically not as Trinitarian, they don't, the Spirit thing that kind of freaks us out sometimes. But, um, but 
The Spirit is really important in this. He is promised. He's the sealer. He is the applier of all this stuff. The guarantee of our inheritance, chapter 1 says. In Him, we're built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so this is a deeply um, mystic and beautiful reality steeped in prayer as we work through all of this. Can't do much this week. I'll do more on it next week. Okay, the trunk of the tree has these three words on it. Worship, transformation, service. That transformation is the word that is short for the phrase transformed by God's grace. This is it, y'all. Why do we put it on the trunk? Not just because it's profoundly biblically true and powerfully practical, but this is our story. It's our heritage, it's our present reality, and it is our future hope. If we can believe, if you can believe, believe meaning, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That's the trust factor, that you trust that grace is the generative reality of the Christian world, that life. If you believe that this grace is real, it will change everything. It'll change stuff you don't want to change. It won't change it in the way you want all the time, but it will change everything. And it'll always change because it's outside of you. It'll always change in the way that God wants you to change. And he is the craftsman. You will be made new. Look, we live in a weird a world that all of our mirrors lie to us, either telling us we're more important than we are or not important at all. And so do our virtual personas. They're not real. We live in an utterly toxic culture that refuses to see the dignity of the other. Even showing compassion to another human being in a different tribe can get you kicked out of your own tribe. We live in a world that thinks your value is tied to your paycheck or your clothing. As Dave Wilcox says, I know that compassion is all out of fashion and anger is all the rage. But grace says there is this infusion from outside, not just of you, but of the world that comes in and redefines everything so that you can look in the mirror, not as one who's perfect or can boast in anything other than the fact that you're loved so much that you'll be recreated in something more precious than gold. And that is truer than your lying mirror. It will change the world. It will let you receive someone's side eye or downward glance or judgment because his love defines all of who you are and all of who we are as a community. The God of the universe loves to love you is what the gospel says. We can just stop there.
if it's true, and it is true, it means that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ frees you to come exactly as you, who you are because you don't even know who you are. But that God starts to work in you and change you and shape you into something more beautiful than you can imagine. I got a lot more, but I'm not even, I didn't read through it beforehand, so I'm not sure which parts I'm supposed to not have. I wrote this. God loves you. Every hair on your head, even if there are a lot less hairs on your head, every square inch of you, even if you have too many square inches. He loves me now, 16 pounds lighter than six months ago. And he'll love me six months from now if I gained all 16 pounds back and gained 16 more. He loves your body, he loves your soul, your history, and your future. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help our unbelief. Help it be truer than our mirrors than the clicks or likes, the opinions of others, than our family stories, than what our tribes tell us, help it be the truest thing so that we might believe it so much we could tell another and see another as your workmanship. Would you give us that faith to believe that amazing grace? We pray in your name. Amen.